the gospel as their foundation. The Holy Spirit is writing through the Apostle Paul here, trying to ground the Ephesians' faith in the unshakable gospel rather than the shifting sands that this world gives us to lay as our foundation. So Ephesians moves really, really quickly after the first two introductory verses. Paul just jumps right into it. If you're familiar with the gospel of Mark, you might know what his favorite word is. He uses it 18 times in 16 chapters. The word immediately, because that gospel is like the gospel that got shot out of a cannon. Well, that's what Roman or Ephesians is like Romans being shot out of a cannon. That's kind of what you got going on here. And he's going to get really deep in right away And the rest of the passage is really going to flow out of verse 3. Let me read it to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And all the rest of the verses that I'm going to read are going to come out of unpacking what that means. And Paul's going to take great detail to explain what does it mean to be grounded in the gospel. And in doing so, he's going to give the Ephesians an amazing gospel foundation for their faith. He's really going to help them understand what does it mean when we say that you are to have your identity wrapped up in Christ. And he's going to give them very careful treatment to show them who they are in Christ, and he is going to go beyond the vague, touchy, feely to show them exactly what it means when he says that they are loved by Christ. And he's even going to take them back to the very beginning to show them how long it's been that Christ has set his affections upon them and how long he's cared for them. But let me just share this for you for a second about how we're going to approach these verses. We are not going to be focusing on what you have done for God, what you should do for God, what you're messing up by not doing for God, what you need to do to maintain a relationship with God, because this passage does not focus on that. Ironically, those are usually the most popular kinds of messages that are preached and yield the most immediate fruit. A lot of my examples of those kinds of responses come from observing condemning teachers standing up and wagging their fingers about how none of you are loving God right, and I just don't like that feeling. I hate condemnation, and the people that preach it are really unfortunate because they're obscuring the gospel. I remember this one time I was preaching at a chapel service, and I've given you guys a few illustrations from chapel services because I've just seen that, man, some of the stuff that people are giving to kids in chapel services at Christian schools is just reheated garbage. And I came out of 1 Corinthians 15, and my main verse was 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me will not prove vain, but I labored more than any, but not I, but the grace of God with me. And that verse is so important to me that I actually have it tattooed in Greek going down this arm, theos, charis, ego, amy, ego, and my one point is that if they have embraced the gospel then it's by the grace of God that each of those young people are who they are and his grace to them will not prove vain through this life. So they should stop trying to look to gain approval in other people's eyes and to gain approval that is already theirs by the merit of Christ Jesus. And they looked at me with the blankest stares that I've ever received. And I spoke to the chaplain afterwards and he told me that in all of his years, 
serving at that school that it was the first time that he had ever heard somebody come in and just tell these children, this is the gospel, this is who you are because of the gospel, and we want to remind you of who you are in Christ because of the gospel. He said that usually people come in just teaching law and shame, and then the kids flock to the front of the altar calls when the pastor asked them, what are you going to do to change to be less like you already are? And I was saddened. I said, then get new people to come in. People that will come and preach the gospel. I saw the same thing at a conference that I was at recently. There was all of the, you know what, when I say recently, R.C. Sproul was there. He's been dead for a minute, hasn't he? So I guess it wasn't um, that recently. But there's these wonderful gospel-centered messages from men like R.C. Sproul and John Piper. And then this one guy comes up and just preaches this message that was so full of condemnation. It was about missions, and it was, why do you not care enough? Why do you hate all of the children starving in Africa? How come you hate your neighbors? And I was just like, I don't. I don't hate any of these people. Why are you telling me that I hate these people? But this was the message that everybody was thunderously applauding for. Because people feel bad. And when somebody ends up reinforcing the bad feelings that you've already come with, then you can easily excuse that as, well, this must be mature. And then I remember even looking online and seeing that all this stuff that this guy was saying was just trending on Twitter and stuff. And I'm like, why? That guy just preached reheated garbage at you. Why don't you just fall in love with the gospel that was just preached? And we come from an area of the country where Christians are addicted to law and religious moralism, and it's very hard to wean them off of it. And have you ever tried to preach the gospel to people and instead of them telling you what Christ has done for them, they tell you all the things that they do? I go to church, I go to confession, I was baptized. And say, but I'm not talking about that. I'm trying to tell you what Jesus has done for you. It's actually, I think, the biggest area that we have to combat is being faithful missionaries, planting churches in the Northeast. I've learned over and over and over that people would rather hear a message about what they need to do for God than to hear a message about what God has done for them. But it's a solid understanding of the gospel that frees your heart to live the Christian life as God intended it. And to be lifelong lovers of Jesus, not the ones that just spring up for a moment and then wither and die. And that's what Paul is trying to give them as the foundation in this passage. And I want to understand that. Years ago, when Marcy and I were doing a, um, a travel of Paul's missionary journeys, we were given a book called Paul the Apostle with the Heart Set Free. And I remember thinking, just looking at the cover of that book, yes, I did judge the book by its cover. I want to be a man who I can say my heart is set free, that is not bound to the law and bound to moralism and bound to superficial fake Christianity. So Paul's going to spend the next 11 verses trying to explain to them what it means that they have been blessed with every spiritual blessing because they have received the gospel and what it looks like to have your heart set free. So what does it look like to be blessed with every spiritual blessing? Paul starts off with a really interesting point that requires a little bit of explanation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless, and I'll go on further. But the first part of what it means to be blessed with every spiritual blessing is that we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. This book where Paul's intention is to ground the Ephesian believers in the gospel, Paul starts exactly where he should by grounding their salvation and the life we have in Christ, in the gospel of Christ, and by grounding the gospel in the person of Christ. And you might think, duh, of course our salvation is grounded in the gospel. But I'm telling you, It might seem like it should just be taken for granted, but that's not usually the case if you listen to the way that people tell their stories. If you listen to the way that most people tell their testimony, they would say that salvation was grounded in a choice rather than grounded in the gospel. And they would go on to tell you how they chose God. And in a really good story, they might tell you like, man, I was just battling back and forth until God finally wore me down and I got sick of the things that I was choosing and then I chose Christ. So in the most common telling of the gospel, salvation does not rest in the gospel, but on a choice. And that is partially true. Our salvation does rest in a choice, but it's not in your choosing God. According to verse 4, it's God's relentless reckless pursuit of you. It doesn't say that God chose you alone. It also says when he chose you. Look at verse 4 again. And he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 4 tells us that we were chosen in Christ And in Christ, it was before the foundation of the world. He didn't choose you at the moment that you chose him. He didn't look down the corridors of time and see that if given the opportunity that you were so morally exemplary that you would have chosen him. So therefore, based on your choice of him, he is now going to choose you. That would be impossible because in the very next chapter, he says that before he quickened your heart by his spirit, you were dead. And the one thing I know about dead people is they don't choose things. Dead people just be dead. That's all they know how to do. And the truth is further reinforced in verse 5 when he says, He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The term predestined means that God has predetermined in advance the particular fate or purpose. And verse 4 tells us what the in advance was. In eternity past, before the foundation of the world. So to put it all together, what these two verses are saying is part of being blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, that those who belong to Christ were chosen by Christ to belong to Christ before the foundation of the world. He did not choose you on the basis of anything you have done. He did not choose you because he knew that given the opportunity you would choose him. He did not choose you because he saw something that was in you that was worthy of the choosing. 
He chose you because in his sovereignty, he saw fit to choose you and call you to himself. God chose you because he loves you. God chose you because he's crazy about you now. He'll be crazy about you in the future, and he is going to be crazy about you for all of eternity. And this is not always a well-understood theology. There's some pretty common arguments against this doctrine of predestination. And I'm not trying to get into a squabble here because I really do want to get into some practical things. And I'm telling you, I'm not preaching Calvinism versus Arminianism. I'm preaching the words on this page. The most common argument is, well, that doesn't sound very loving. Well, what about the words on the page? It says right here, in love, he predestined you for adoption as sons. So the one who we just read about from 1 John earlier, where it said that we only know love because he first loved us. The one who defined love and showed love, he has the right to be able to say what love is. And for us to say that something is not loving that he has called loving means that we are doubting what he has called love. There are those who take the approach of, well, you know, we can't really know how to take the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, so let's just straddle the middle. Man, that's sissy theology. That's, that's just taking a cop out. Scriptures like this need to be reconciled. If they're saying that anything, at least let them say something. Another common argument is, what about those who have never heard? Man, I love it when people bring that up to me. Because Paul comes to the same thing in Romans chapter 10 when he says, how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they hear unless they're sent? So what he's saying, if you are so broken over those who never heard, then go. Go and tell them. If you're going to be using the excuse, what of those who never heard and then trying to impugn God's honor because of it, then you better at least leave here and be sharing the gospel with every single person, every toll booth collector, every person working at a cash register, every person who comes to pump your gas, every single one of them if you're going to impugn God's honor based off of what of those who have never heard. Paul's conclusion was, yeah, you're right to wonder what about those who have never heard. Go tell them. And my favorite is if this is true, then why evangelize? So if, if you're making that point, I just want to ask you, who did you really think was saving that person to begin with? Do you think that it was your clever evangelistic tactics that was able to take a heart and pump it back from the dead, defibrillate it, and then make that person come to Jesus Christ? For those of us that do embrace predestination, yet have no evangelism in their lives, I just want to tell you that that's not a fair, uh, that's a straw man. It's not because of predestination, it's because they're lazy. That's why they're not preaching the gospel. It's because they're disobedient. And they chose to disregard what the scriptures say about our responsibility to reach the lost. The biblical view, according to, this is Charles Simeon, God saves the elect, but in his sovereignty, he allows us to be part of the process in proclaiming the gospel that the Spirit uses to regenerate their hearts. And the biggest arguments against predestination and election usually come out of the fact that people don't understand why God has chosen some and not others. 
Um, I'd love to go deeper into that and give you a full systematic theology of that, but I would just encourage you, read Romans 9, 9 through 21, where he talks about, who are you, O potter, or O clay, to be talking back to the potter and say, why did you make me like this? And then he says, before they were even in the mother's womb, he had said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And people will often try to combat that by saying, but why did he hate Esau? And as it's been said, the better question, if you really read that text, is why the heck did he love Jacob? Plus, we need to remember that God's not obligated to save any. So why does he save then? So let's move past the fact of how God chose us, and let's look at the more important question, why God chose us. We've already read the first one in verse 4. God chose you so that you could be seen as holy and blameless. This hits at the very heart of the gospel. You're going to see why I set this text up by talking about a theology that maybe some of you are even uncomfortable with because it hits so close to the very heart of the gospel and therefore God's heart itself. There is no way that you could have ever scrubbed away enough sin to ever be holy or blameless. But God has decreed that since the beginning of time that those who are holy and blameless can be the only ones that are in the presence of his holiness. So God chose us knowing that in doing so, he was choosing to die for us to be able to scrub away the sin that would make us holy and blameless so that he could credit his blamelessness to your account and rescue a people to himself that were formerly not holy and blameless, but seeing your sin is completely expunged and removed and taken upon himself and you bear it no more. It is now well with your soul. The next reason that God chose you, it says in verse 4 and 5, he predestined us in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons. So he chose you because he loves you. Before your parents ever gave you a name, God loved you. Before anyone had the opportunity in this life to either affirm you in their love or screw you up through their lack of it, God had already set his sights on you to love you. The third thing we see is God chose you because it was his will to do so. Look in verse 5. In love, he predestined us as adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So he chose you because he wanted to. Think about that. The God of the universe, before you woke up and thought anything this morning, before you were even born, the God of the universe was already spending time thinking about you. Then it tells us that he chose us in the same verse to adopt you as his children, as sons and daughters. Look, if you are a Christian, it's because God called you by name, not because you called him by his Get that. You're here because God first called your name. That's what it means in 1 John chapter 4, that we love only because he first loved us. Next one we see is in verse 6 when it says, To the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. So he chose you because he wants to lavish his grace upon you. Think of that word, lavish. 
We don't have to live lives that are starved of grace. It's not like God's like, you know what, here's a, here's a little grace. God's like, here's grace! This is yours! This is what I chose you for, so that you could be the recipients of it forever and ever. In verse 7 we see, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He chose you to redeem you by his blood. God chose you knowing that it would take the blood of his son in order to redeem you. The Greek word here for redeem, anagarazo, is such a beautiful term. It was used in ancient Greek literature to mean somebody who went into the marketplace and purchased a slavery out of the market in order to give that slave a new master. So be clear, the analogy here is with this word being used, the slave was you, the master was sin, the purchaser was Christ, the payment was his life. That's what he's getting at right here. Next we see, and also in verse 7, that God chose you in order to forgive you of your trespasses. For those of you that struggle with, how could God ever forgive a sinner like me? There's no way if he knew the things that I've done that he could ever forgive me. Let this sink in that before you did anything that even needed to be forgiven, he chose you because he wanted to forgive you. He chose you because, get that again, he wants to forgive you. He does not forgive you begrudgingly. In fact, he chose you before you could ever carry the weight of shame because he planned on putting it on his shoulders on a crossbeam on your behalf so that you would not have to carry it. Again, this is not Calvinism versus Arminianism. This is the gospel. This is what is yours in Christ, brothers and sisters. God chose you to make you a part of his sovereign rescue plan in 8 through 10, in which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth earth. For any of you have ever felt like your life has lacked purpose, wrap your minds around these verses. God chose you so that you could be a part of the grandest plan that has ever been executed in the history of mankind. We get it so wrong. We don't derive our purpose from what we do. We derive our purpose from what Christ has already done on your behalf. And when he did it, he said, it is finished. Next, in verse 11, God chose you to give you an inheritance. Think about this for a second. God was the executor of his own will, and his own will was to choose to give his inheritance to the people who executed him. How amazing is that? God who was the executor, you think of the flippant things that people will write people out of their wills for. And God is saying, I can only put you in my will if you murder my son. In fact, I'm going to choose you knowing that you will do exactly that because that's how deeply I love you and I want to know you. In verse 12, we see, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He chose you so that you could glory in him forever. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Where do you think the writers came up with that? Did they make it up? 
Oh, they got it right here. God chose you so that you might glorify him the rest of your life and that you might enjoy him forever and ever, starting now and then enjoying him from now into the rest of all of eternity. Let me ask you a heart question. Like, please don't leave here without wrestling with this heart question. Do you actively enjoy God? That is your purpose. A Christian who is not enjoying God is living outside of their God-ordained purpose. Do you take the time to set aside all of the pragmatic reasons to have a relationship with him, just to sit at his feet with your hands out and say, God, here I am, Lord. I just want to enjoy you, fellowship with you, relate to you? Are you taking time to step away out of just grinding it out to actually bask in the amazing love that is yours and simply to enjoy Jesus? Let me ask you another heart question because this was, this is probably the harder one for me. Do you truly believe that God enjoys you? God doesn't just put up with you. God doesn't just tolerate you. He's in love with you, man. That's what this whole text is about. He chose you because he's in love with you. So I've been getting probably about as theological as it's comfortable for me to get. So let me step away and just give you some practical points to take away from God's choosing of you. And these will be up here if any of you want to follow along that are note takers. You've been chosen, so therefore you cannot become unchoosable. You are holy and blameless. Even if you did not wake up today feeling holy and blameless. Even if you got into a squabble in the car that you do not feel holy and blameless about. You are holy and blameless because you have been chosen to be holy and blameless. Number three, you have been adopted. Even if you don't feel like a son or a daughter. Number four, you are forgiven. Even if you feel unforgivable. Number five, you are redeemed even if you feel unredeemable. Number six, you are loved even if you feel unlovable. Number seven, you are a part of a plan even if you showed up here this morning saying, what do I do with this life that has no sense of purpose or meaning? And number eight, you have been approved even if you do not feel approvable. All of this is true, but only if you have embraced the gospel. So look with me at our last two verses 13 and 14, in him you have also heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If you want to know if you've been chosen, it does not come down to merely raising your hand and reciting a prayer. It doesn't even come down to if do you want to go to heaven? Listen to this quote that I read this week. It says, the question is not, do you want to go to heaven? The devil wants to go to heaven. I mean, everybody wants to go to heaven. They, don't just, they just don't want God to be there when they get there. The question is not, do you want to go to heaven? The question is, since you have heard the gospel preaching, has God done such a supernatural work in your heart that the God that you have once hated and ignored, you now esteem, love, and seek? And that is what verse 13 is saying. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel, was it received with faith 
and belief and is the resulting life a life of love and obedience but a longing for this God. We who have embraced the gospel, there's one more benefit listed here in his choosing of you and that's that his choosing always comes with a no return policy. That's what it means in verses 13 and 14 when it says that you were sealed with the spirit of promise. That word sealed there was a word that was used in the ancient Greek world when a king would send out something and he would have a signet ring and he would put that signet into the wax in order to seal it. And the only person that could open that thing up was the person on the other end that was receiving it that had the matching signet ring. So if God is the one who sealed you Nothing you can do can unseal you. You have come with a no-return policy. Man, I don't know how many of you are like me, but when you go shopping, you walk past all the stuff at the front of Old Navy, and you walk, you know where I'm talking about, to that back left corner, right? To the things that are on the defect shelf, for the things that are like, oh man, check out what I just scored for four bucks. As a matter of fact, these jeans that I'm wearing right now, $5.99 at Old Navy just a couple of weeks ago. So, you know what they always tell you when you buy stuff off the defect shelf? They say, you know that if you bought it off the defect shelf, you can't return it. So look at it like this. Jesus bought you off the defect shelf knowing that you would not be able to be returned because he never planned on returning you anyway. Except in God's case, the defect shelf was not a discount shelf because instead of getting you on the cheap, it cost you everything to purchase you off the defect shelf. So if you've embraced the gospel Stop feeling like you have to earn these things to make them true. The most beautiful thing about God's choosing you is that you are free to find security from performance-based Christianity. Because God chose you, not on the merit of what you would do, but on the basis of what he has done for you and what he wants to do with you and that he who began a good work in you will continually see it through Philippians 1.5 until the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us with an irresistible love. You are so good. In Jesus' name, amen.